It is indeed the word of the Lord. May he write it on our hearts that we might not sin against him. Well, brothers and sisters, I am uh, deeply grateful to be able to come before you once again um, after not that long of a gap uh, to bring the word before you. I've been wrestling with this passage this week, and um, I think this is a hard one for many of us to come to terms with. And I think you'll see why as we get sort of further into it. The title of the sermon is When God Says No. And I don't know if you know this or have somehow forgotten. Uh, So I have an 18-month-old child named Archie. Uh, It's kind of hard to miss him. Um, Or Archibald, if you want to be, you know, antiquitous. Um, It's Archibald, a.k.a. Archie. The little guy is about the cutest thing, um, about the cutest, happiest, uh, malicious, temperamental, emotional child that you've ever seen. But I love him with everything in me. Archie is, uh, he's now coming into a time of his sort of development where he knows how to say a few things and he's very opinionated on a lot of things. Um, It's fun, I think is the term that I should use here. He is discovering many words, one of which is no, right? No is about his favorite word around. No and mine. Pretty much the the whole of human existence and the the human condition could be summed up in uh, mine and no. Those are kind of the the, the two things that he's concerned with right now. And so um, just this week, we were hanging out on the couch. We were watching um, uh, a a 2002 Disney film called Treasure Planet, which if you don't know, is the single most underrated Disney film of all time. It's amazing. It's literally Treasure Island in space. It's awesome. Right, So we were watching this together as a family, um, and he stands up and just starts jumping on the couch because it's a, it's a fun movie. He wants to you know, do things that he sees on screen. So um, he starts jumping on the couch, and he, uh, I ask him clearly and very uh, sternly, sit down and be careful. And he looks right in my eyes. And from the deepest, deepest places within him, he just goes, no. And the scream, I'm t- telling you, the screech that comes out of his voice made the metalhead in me really excited, right? <laughs> but I had to like quell that for a moment. Um, and then the parent in me uh, was really confident that this simply will not stand. So I had a, a moment um, that I had to make a decision, right? I could either demonstrate my kingly authority over my home and bring the strong arm of justice down on him, or I could laugh and tell him how cute he was and, and, uh, and how awesome it was that he was diso- directly disobeying who God has put in his life to be an authority over him. So inevitably, I ended up doing some, some, some sort of combination of the two, which is kind of parenting, right? You just kind of figure out where in the middle you need to go. So now, well, that's my point in telling you this. None of us like to hear the word no. From the earliest to the oldest of us, we don't like to hear the word no. We don't like being told no. Not from our children, from our parents, from our teachers, our friends, not from our brothers and sisters in Christ, not from our employers or coworkers or employees, not from our spouses, and certainly not from God. We don't like hearing the word no. But the reality is sometimes we get told no. Sometimes it's from God. And we have to deal with that. So, as we've seen uh, sort of from our band of adventurers as they're making their way through um, the the region of Lystra and Iconium, we've seen them lose a couple before the voyage. We lost Barnabas and we lost John Mark. 
But we've also gained Silas and Antioch before they set sail. And then when we get to Lystra and Iconium, there's this guy, Timothy, that comes on the scene. And he joins the band and now is, is sort of traveling with these ad- adventurers, these missionaries through regions in order to strengthen the church, to encourage the brothers and sisters to hand deliver the letter that Silas is likely carrying on his person at all time from the brothers in Jerusalem saying, look, you don't need circumcision to be saved. God alone is who saves, right? That's what we need. We need Christ. We need trust and faith in him. And now they're going through and they're excited. They're ready to get to the next portion of their journey where they're gonna continue to preach this message of Christ and Christ alone. And they're gonna take this message to the churches, encourage them with it. Then they're gonna take it to the lost and hopefully see many come to know the person of Jesus through their work. This is what they've been doing. This is what they're gonna continue to do. We're gonna see quickly in our text that the life of a missionary is indeed not always so glamorous. It's hard, it's discouraging, and things pop up that you're not ready for. So there's gonna be two things that we're gonna see in our text today that will serve as our outline. Number one, godly guidance. Godly guidance, that will be verses six through 10. And second will be prevailing providence. Prevailing providence, that'll be verses 11 through 15. And there will be some time for application in there as we sort of see what the scripture is telling us and then what do we do with this? Because we're not Paul, right? We're not doing what Paul is doing. How, How can we apply that to our lives as well? So as you read a moment ago, first, godly guidance. Uh, Paul and his companions are on the move here, right? They're going. It seems as though their desire to preach the gospel and strengthen the churches filled them with a deep desire to go north and northwest through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So these areas are in a region called Asia Minor. So this is a a large portion here. And apparently it had been made, made very clear to them that they are forbidden to speak the word of the Lord in the region of Asia, or in Asia, or in the region of Asia Minor. Now thinking as people here who are 21st century Christians, who have an understanding of what Paul did back then as a pioneering missionary and as well as uh, people who have been in churches or not been in, in churches, we here as Redemption Baptist Church, we are a church plant, right? We're thinking missionally about everything that we do. We want to not just grow, but we want to grow because God is saving, because we're proclaiming the word of God. That's exactly what Paul is is wanting. He's taking the same message to the churches to encourage and strengthen them. And then he's turning around and saying, okay, we've, we've dealt with the people of God. Now let's deal with the lost world around us. He's taking that same message of hope in Christ to them. So it, one leads into the other. And, and he wants the churches of this area to grow because God is saving people and doing a great work among them, right? That's what he wants. It's the same thing we want here. And so for us to read here, to stop and sort of be taken aback right from the jump, I'm talking the first uh, sort of portion, the very first verse of our text this morning, the Holy Spirit forbids Paul to preach the gospel in Asia Minor. This is a massive region. This isn't just like a couple of towns, right? We move really quickly in our text through a very large portion of of, uh, land. There is a massive amount of space that is being traveled over uh, in our text today. We have no indicators uh, to tell us by what means they were forbidden from preaching. 
It can be speculated and, and uh, uh, there can be conjecture around it. It could be circumstances. Maybe they were persecuted. And so they want to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves and go to where there's not so much persecution so they can be more effective and not die immediately and not have the gospel advance, right? So maybe that's the case. Seems unlikely. Paul's already been hurt a lot and persecuted a lot in his first missionary journey, so it would seem un- unlikely. Silas is mentioned as a prophet in 1532, right? Before this, right? He's, they said he is a prophet, right? Whatever that means, maybe that means he's gotten some sort of understanding or prophetic understanding of what is to come. Not necessarily in like a, I see the future sort of thing, but like I get the sense and I'm discerning man that this might not be wise for us. Maybe that's it. We don't know. It is not known how this understanding was communicated to them, but it was clear by whom this was communicated to them. God himself, the Holy Spirit, was telling them, do not go here and speak the word of God. And this is a large area. This is maybe the first time in, uh, in my uh, preaching to you guys that I was very tempted to print off maps to have for all of you in your hand. So uh, uh, sidebar, if you're in Bible study this week, ladies, you're going to be in your uh, Bible study. Somebody print out or have on a screen a map for you guys to look at because this is a large area they're traveling over, many towns and uh, many places that they want to go, but the Holy Spirit is preventing them from doing so. It'll be very helpful for you. So regardless of how it was communicated, they know the Holy Spirit, God himself, was telling them to not speak his word, not speak the word of God to these people. God was telling them to do that. So what did Paul and his company do in light of this obvious prohibition from the Spirit? He made plans to go beyond that region and preach the gospel to them. He just wanted to continue, okay, let's pass up this region and try and get to the next place where it would be allowed for us to preach the gospel, right? He's hopeful still to move past this area that was prohibited for him and go beyond. So Paul... they're taking a north and northwest sort of approach. So they're going from Lystra and uh, Iconium, and they're going sort of up, and they eventually are going along the border of this place called Bithynia, right? So going along the border, they get near the border and say, okay, that's not Asia Minor. God didn't say anything about that. Let's go there and preach the gospel. Let's work our way up there to modern-day Turkey, towards modern-day Istanbul, which acts as like a bridge between Europe and Asia and the Middle East. It is sort of this, this huge conglomerate of many types of people. Even, even back in Paul's day, this is a strategic place to reach. People f- were coming here from all over the world, and people were, that are here are going to go all over the world. And so, oh, they're going along this border, trying to be obedient, not stopping anywhere to, to do what Paul does and go to the synagogues, but actually continue on and go beyond where God said they couldn't do. So he t- intends to go to Bithynia towards modern-day Istanbul. But look again at the following verse. When they come upon this area, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into Bithynia. So once again, Paul says, okay, Lord, I'm going to obey that. I'm not going to preach the gospel to these really heathenous sort of like uh, Asia Minor filled, this massive area of people that need your, your gospel. Instead, I'll follow the route around and I'll go to the next place. And then once again, God said no. The literal spirit of Jesus said no. So instead, they go to Tros and they figure out what they can do. While there, they finally hear from God where he must go. They must travel to Macedonia. 
there are people there that God is willing, is ready to save. He has for them to preach the gospel to. So sidebar, um, as you see um, between verses seven, so you see in verse seven, there's the they in the, in the text. In verse 10, there is the we. So ladies, if you haven't been talking about this each week in Bible study, I know we have because I'm leading and I bring this up every time. Sorry, I guess. But uh, this is important because Luke has now joined the journey, right? He's entered the chat. He's here. He's ready to go. And so he is uh, joining them at Shrubs and is now going to go with them to Macedonia. That, that, that'll be really cool as we start to see sort of how long he's with them and where he gets dropped off at. But they are ready and they're going to go uh, to Macedonia. Now pause. I know I went through all of that pretty quickly. This was not an easy venture, right? This is a long haul over many, many miles. It is about 530 to 580 or so miles from Lystra and Iconium to Tros. This is a massive voyage. It would have taken them a week easy, if not more than that, depending on how big their company was, um, to travel this far. And they, they stopped near Bithynia to say, oh, we're just going to go up here and preach to these people that we haven't preached to yet. And the Holy Spirit once again said no. So then they took off and they waited in trust. This is a massive amount of area that they're traveling. All the while being prevented from preaching the gospel. They spent a week, and this is Paul, Right? We've seen Paul's zealousness to preach the gospel immediately when he gets into places. He'll go to the synagogue, he'll preach, they'll reject it. He'll go to the Greeks and then they receive the word of the Lord and he plants a church, right? That's what Paul does. In almost every city he goes to, that's what he's been doing. And now the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, both terms being used, says, no, don't preach. Do not preach here and do not preach there. So I can only imagine the discouragement that is abounding in the heart of Paul and Silas and Timothy and their company. I mean, can you imagine? These brothers went over 500 miles without doing what their lives have been commended by the church and personally devoted to, right? They've been commended by the church to go to other churches, strengthen them, and to preach the gospel to the lost. That's what the church of Antioch laid hands on them and said they were going to do. And so they've been commended by the church to do this. And personally, they want to do this. This is deep within the DNA of who they are. God has laid on their heart to reach those who do not know Jesus and to strengthen those who do. And for 500 miles or so, they can't. God says, no, don't do that. So this is, so imagine to kind of put it in our own sort of perspective, a similar trajectory and a similar, similar amount of miles would be going from here to Amarillo the whole way, right? And it's kind of like this long curve and then you go up and, but you get to the border of Oklahoma and God, you're like, yes, there's these pagans, right? These tribesmen that are across the border over there. We want to go preach the gospel to them. And God says, no, don't do that. So you just keep on going and you get to Amarillo after a week and it is so incredibly hot. And then finally, God says, you, there, is, uh, uh, the, there are others who are gonna reach Oklahoma. There's others that are gonna reach that area that you just passed through. Lord knows DFW needs the gospel, right? <laughs> so there are gonna be others that are going to uh, reach them, but it's not you. You're not gonna do this. I have people for you in New Mexico, right? I have people over there in this land of enchantment that are ready to hear the, the gospel. Come, they need your help. 
So immediately upon hearing the Macedonian call, Paul's obedience is clear, discernible. The obedience he shows to the clear and discernible will of God is immediate. So even in the midst of his discouragement, even in the midst of his obvious potential frustration, Paul is not wasting his time. He's preparing himself for obedience. He's ready for the moment that God says go, and he wants to go. His, his desire for obedience is immediate. Paul had been wound so tight that as soon as he got the green light, he jumped at the opportunity to go and preach the word. And it says from Tros the next day, they left and they stopped in this, this little island port that they had to restock on supplies. And the following day, they went and they landed in uh, Neapolis and then eventually went to, to Philippi. So in a very short amount of time, Paul's going, Right? He got the okay. He knows what they're doing. God's told him where to go, so he's going. He's ready and willing to do the immediate obedience that is demanded of us in the Lord. We will not always know exactly what the Lord wants from us. But when we do know, our obedience must be swift. There's a reason we tell our children, and indeed we tell one another, that delayed obedience is disobedience. If God says go, our immediate desire should be to go. If God says, open your mouth, our immediate answer should be, yes, Lord, I'll open my mouth. What, I mean, what else could Paul possibly be waiting on here? Like, what p potentially you know, qu uh, questionable situation was arising that Paul would not be ready to jump? I mean, is he waiting for sort of the right time or the right moment or the right amount of relationship? Is he waiting on someone more mature than him to accompany him? Like, is, he some, is there something else in his life that's robbing him from his affections for God in such a way that would prevent him from going and doing what God has clearly told him to do? No, there's nothing. God says something and Paul obeyed. This is the heart of a disciple. When our master, when our Lord says, go and make disciples, we go and we make disciples. When he says, teach others to obey all that I've commanded you, we go and we teach. Paul desires to be obedient, and it was that simple. He is wound and prepared, and we must know that that entire journey, he's not wasting his time. He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's immersing himself in the scriptures that he's bringing with him. He is having I, I, I'm sure, conversations with Silas about where they are to go, how they are to, to reach, who they are to, to preach to. And then Timothy, this young blood that has just been circumcised by Paul's recommendation to go and to preach the gospel, is being raised up and trained in these 500 miles to be able to go and to preach the, the gospel beyond wherever they're going. So, a little bit of application from, from Paul's situation this morning, a little bit more application. One is have an ear tuned to the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean some hyper-spiritual understanding of the voice of God. That's not what I'm saying here, right? If you know me, you know why. This doesn't mean a hyper-spiritual sort of uh, understanding of, of knowing exactly what the audible voice of God is saying, but rather speak the language of the Spirit. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Know what God desires. Know the will of God. Know the heart of God for the lost. And that will prepare you for when God sends you out into that lost. Despite what some, uh, well, 
there are many out there who make the claim that if if you're not going constantly, and if you're not going specifically to the unreached in the, the world, that you're just absolutely in disobedience. I'm not there, but I am telling you, sometimes it is better just to obey than to advance, right? There is a dwelling, sitting, breathing in the obedience of God that is, that is re- revealed to us, even when we're prevented from going to people and sharing the gospel, even when we're prevented from doing the work that we truly want to do, even when we're prevented from doing stuff, there is still an obedience to be found in the meantime, right? In the waiting, in the patiently waiting on God to send you where he's going to send you and do with you what he's going to do with you. So be ready when that time comes. Submit yourselves to the obedience in in the meantime, in the spaces in between the going. So, be ready when the they becomes the we. A little bit of application from when when we uh, see Luke join this voyage. Be ready when they becomes we. There are people in this city, in this context of ours, that God wants to bring around us for the purpose of raising up, training, and equipping for the work of the ministry, just as we are to do, right? There are people here, so be ready. Prepare yourself for when that time comes. Don't be shocked or surprised or taken aback when God decides to do something in our midst that's gonna demand some time of you, that's gonna demand some intentionality and discipleship from you. These are good things that our God has given to us to do. So be ready when the they become the we, when others come and join in on what is, is going on here. And look, lastly, from this section, go until God says stop. Obey until God very clearly tells you, obey, just not there, right? Don't do that. It's not wrong to plan our days and be prepared for what the Lord is going to do. But remember Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We must understand that even as we're going, even as we're doing, there, there may be an opportunity for God to say no, and stop you in your tracks and point you elsewhere. That does not mean that you're exempt from obedience, right? Obedience to the commands of Christ is important, and it is everything that drives us to do what we do. Everything that we do here, everything that we do outside of these walls is because we want to obey the one who has saved us, right? We want to love Christ because he first loved us, and this is how he told us to love him, right? Is to do these things. You have a calling, obey. God will guide you. William Booth, in the late 19th century, he was a minister, and he's the one that founded, actually, the Salvation Army. He was their first general in the Salvation Army. He once spoke of the idea that some held that they must have sort of this intentional calling, this Macedonian call-type understanding to go somewhere. If you'll notice, Paul was going until God said, stop, right? He was going to go to Bithynia, and God said, no. He was going to preach in Asia, but God said, no, don't do that. Instead, God said yes to somewhere else. It's not that Paul was exempt and was not thinking about obeying until he heard a yes, right? Which is what a lot of people in Booth's time were were saying. I'm going to sit on my hands until God very clearly, nearly audibly, is going to tell me to go somewhere and do something, right? William Booth had this on a sermon on this subject. He said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you mean. Put your ear down to the Bible and not to the sky and hear him bid you go and pull sinners from the fire of sin. 
Put your ear down to the burdened, agonizing heart of humanity and listen to its pitfall wail for help. Go stand there by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not come to them. Then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world, end quote. You see, this entire process here, God had called them. God had called them to himself. And then beyond that, they are obeying what Christ has said, what is good and true and found in the scriptures. They're just doing what they know until God says, no, go somewhere else to do it. You see, this entire process was God guiding these men. We need to understand that even when we perceive something in the negative, God is still at work in the midst and his hand is still to that plow. The very first command that God gave to humanity was do not eat of this tree. It's a negative. Don't do this. It's not always gonna be go. It's gonna be go. Take, all of this is yours. You can, you can have whatever you want here. Work the land, like till it, but do not do this, right? Just as a father often and should use both positive and negative guidance when raising a child, so much more so does God both use the negative and the, the positive to grow and mature his people. He uses both mountains and valleys to guide them in the midst of their obedience. Closed doors, though a negative guidance, are still truly guidance and godly guidance. Closed doors are God's way of telling you, move your feet somewhere else. Now, don't jump to that too quickly, right? Don't give up on people, right? Preach the gospel until God makes it real obvious. But, but, Closed doors can be what God uses to move you to something greater that he has in mind for you. Just as you would always tell your children, do not go play in the street. It's for their own protection. Rather, I have something better for you. There's this awesome backyard that we get to have fun in and explore and dig up and look at bugs and try and find lizards and all these cool things that our kids like to do. We're not going to tell them to do that in the street because that's dangerous. There's something better. God so much more than we are is a good and gracious heavenly father who has something better for us, even in the midst of the closed doors. Often we feel as though when God closes a door, we simply go a different direction and things might be different, right? And that's true. But then, well, what if he closes a door and then we go somewhere else and he closes another one? And then we go somewhere else and he's closing another one and another door and another door. And all these doors are closed and we're just standing in a hallway with, with, empty, or with uh, closed doors and empty rooms, right? What will your posture before God be when that situation inevitably arises in your own life? I know many a saint who has fallen to the pit of despair at such an occurrence. They've lost sight of the anchor of their hope and placed their affection in the things of the Lord rather than the Lord himself. Thomas Fuller once said, hope is the only tie which keeps the heart from breaking. The only hope that we have not to fall into utter despair is that Jesus is with us and that our hope is placed in him and not in the things that we get to do for him. God loves you. Even uh, he, he, he loves you enough to tell you no. 
He loves you even when he tells you no. Forget not that he crushed the sun on your behalf. Forget not that the, the gospel was made clear and evident to you in such a way that God reached in and pulled you from the depths of sin and delivered you into his glory. Forget not that God loves you enough to crush his own sons that your sins might be forgiven. And forget not that he rose him from the dead, all because of a negative, all because you are a sinner and you are in need of redemption. You rejected God's law. You rejected the hope that we have in God's glory. And instead, you trusted your own ways. You trusted yourself. And in the midst of that, God did something glorious. He saves. He atones. So, hope in God, dear weary saint. I know a lot of things haven't always gone our way here. I'm speaking like here, Redemption Baptist Church. Things haven't always gone our way. Not, at least not the way that we wish they may have could, you know? This is still the Lord's guidance. Even, even the things that have happened in and around our people is still the Lord guiding us for his glory and our benefit. Hold on to the promises of Jesus in the day when you're on the mountaintop so, so that when you're in the valley, you may remember how good he is. Because there are good even in the midst of discouragement. Hope abounds even in the midst of darkness. Hold on to the promises of Jesus. Remember what he has done for you. Remember who he is. We want, <clears throat> we want uh, uh, when you want to give up and when we all want to give up and drift into you know, easy believing nominalism, remember Christ who gave up his life and was crushed for you. Remember when you are weeping once again for that lost family member or friend, remember Christ who intercedes for you and is calling you to go and intercede for them. Remember when you're tempted to withdraw, to recluse from community, remember that God has given you a family of God that cannot be taken away by worldly weapons, by worldly devices. He has given you a people that, that he has grafted in to his own that he has adopted as sons and, da and daughters of Christ. Sorry, of God, in Christ. When God says no, listen to his guidance and be ready to obey. Have your yes ready to go, e even if God is telling you no. Because honestly, his plan is better than yours anyway. He, he knows better. You're fickle and emotional and don't always think clearly about everything. I know I am, that's the way I am. God is perfect in his leading and perfect in his guidance. Trust in that guidance, even when it seems like it's in the negative. Amen. So, when God says no, listen to the guidance, be ready to obey. Point two, prevailing providence. So, okay, everyone take a breath, all right? God said no, all right? Breathe. Now, God is saying yes. God does say yes. It's good that God said yes, and he's sending people where he sends them. This is a good thing. Finally, Paul finally gets the green light from the Holy Spirit, and he sets sail for Macedonia, first stopping at the island of, of Samothrace, an island of pagan mystical worship, um, and they, they worship two fertility gods, and it is a pagan land, and yet Paul knows, I'm going over here. We're stopping, restocking on supplies, and then we're leaving. Once they leave Samothrace, uh, they sail to Neapolis, which is about 10 miles from Philippi, their eventual destination. 
right? So they're going to this city of Philippi. Now Philippi, um, so this voyage from Tros to Macedonia or to, to Philippi is about 125 miles, so significantly less than the, the voyage that they, ju- or the, the venture, I should say, that they just took across the land of Asia Minor. And they're going to Philippi. Now Philippi was an autonomously governed Roman colony and a very wealthy one at that. People have often called it a second Rome, just for how affluent and intelligent the people were, how wealthy the people were. Paul had to change his tactics when he got to the city far more than he has in the past. So it appears from our text, as we see here, that when they arrived in Philippi, into this leading city in the district of Macedonia, he remained there days, and on the Sabbath, he went outside the gate to the riverside, where he supposed there was a place of prayer. Now, pause there for a second. Notice, this is different than Paul's normal MO, right? Where does Paul normally go when he gets to a city? Synagogue, right? He's done that almost every time. He wants to go to a synagogue, he's going to preach to the Jew first, and to the Gentile, right? When the Jews inevitably reject him. Some don't, most do, right? And then threaten to stone him, chase him out of the city, do whatever. <laughs> Travel with him to the next city he's going to, to get him kicked out of that city also, the Jews have not been super kind to Paul, right? So, um, he, but, but he is, he is hardline. This is what I want to do. I'm going to go in, I'm going to preach to the synagogue, and then I'm going to go, and I'm going to preach to the Gentile world. The Jewish presence in Philippi appears to be significantly less than anywhere else he's gone thus far. Because notice, it's, it's the Sabbath day, and he's not going to the synagogue. He's going to a prayer meeting. Now, in the ancient world, um, it is... Uh, you had to have 10 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue, right? So not, not a lot, but if it was just women, if you had 100 women, but you had six guys, uh, you couldn't form a synagogue. Um, so that's just kind of how their sort of church planting method was, I guess you should say, synagogue planting method. That's, that's what they did. They would only congregate if there was 10 Jewish men. And so um, they, they got there. Apparently, there is not these 10 men to be found in the region of Philippi that are willing to congregate and meet in a synagogue. They haven't established one here. At least the, the, that's what we can infer from this passage. And so Paul sort of changes his tactics a little bit. He's still going to go on the Sabbath to meet with wherever the Jews are, and he's heard about this prayer meeting. And this prayer meeting is taking place on the riverside. That is because in Philippi, and indeed the region of Macedonia, there was a law saying that people of non, you know, Roman, uh, sort of non-polytheistic religion can worship however they want as long as they go to these certain areas that are oftentimes designated by a body of water, right? So either a river, a sea, the ocean, whatever it may be, right? So uh, Paul is going to where it is permissible for these Jewish women to meet and to practice uh, the good things that God has told them in the Old Testament that they should do, right? They want to worship God in spirit and in truth, and they want to do so according to the law, which is a good start. And then Paul is going to go to them, and he is going to preach. So there is a reason um, um, that Paul is changing his tactics. Pause here for just a moment consider this. What I'm not saying right now is that... We- you need to change your convictions in order to reach people. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that just as Paul did, sometimes we are often going to need to recalibrate our tactics and how we go about reaching people in order to reach the people that God has called us to reach. Either our children, our family, our friends, our coworkers, the people in our city, the people that, that we go and participate in events around the city too, whether it be uh, uh, 
ball games, whether it be dance, whether it be whatever, right? Sometimes we're going to need to recalibrate and review and reassess how we're reaching people in order to reach people effectively. Paul did that. So maybe there's an opportunity for us to do that as well at times. Now, does that mean you need to compromise on what God has been very clear in his word to you about? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is follow your conscience and then do as God allows the, the things that it takes to reach and, uh, and preach and speak the word of God to those around you. Paul did not bat an eye at the change of his context here. He, he rolled with the punches. He had, he'd just been through 500 miles of some pretty serious adversity. He was ready for a little bit of change up, right? I, I mean, change up to go from a synagogue to a riverside prayer meeting is not as extreme of a change as going from preaching the gospel at every town you come to to don't preach the gospel for 500 miles. That's extreme. This one, not so much, right? Not so much. So Paul is ready for this sort of change of pace. There arose no situation in Philippi that Paul was shocked by, right? He was ready to roll with these punches. After um, he'd, he'd been through this journey, curveballs weren't that big of a deal to him anymore. He was, he was ready to participate. So the question we have to ask ourselves is when these times come, are we going to remember when, when the mountaintops are coming, right? And it might be a little bit, the, the weather might be a little bit, you know, tumultuous. When the mountaintops are there, are we going to remember how dry the valleys really were? And is that going to inform how we interact with adversity, even in the good moments, right? Because this is a good moment. God said, yes. God said, go to these people. Paul's going to these people. He's going to go meet with Jewish people as they're eating in order to share with them the hope that he has in Christ. And for he's going to do that, he's not super worried about how, right? He just wants to do it. He remembers how difficult the journey was, and, and that gives him fuel to deal with the adversity that he's facing now, which seems very surmountable in comparison, right? So Paul, Paul approaches these women as a man, which is very out of context, uh, or very out of the ordinary in this context. This was not common practice, even among uh, a Roman colony that was as prestigious and secular as Philippi was. This wasn't common practice even then. Despite being uh, women, Paul spoke to them as the one who had the message of the gospel and the long-awaited Messiah that they're praying for. These women are gathering together, remembering the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets, the writings, and the law, and they are praying that God would send his Redeemer, this covenant Redeemer that had been promised in Isaiah, this hope that we have, this seed of the woman that we saw in Genesis, this son of David, this offspring, this son of man that we see all throughout the Old, Old Testament. They're gathering together, praying that God would send this person. Paul is telling them he did. He's come. Sidebar number two. Uh... Paul is not a woman hater. And anyone that says this clearly hasn't read the Bible very closely. Paul loved women. He communicated the gospel to them. And he absolutely overcomes cultural norms in order to bring the gospel to a group of women, Jewish women, who eventually are going to believe, at least one of them very fervently, out of these women who are faithfully meeting for prayer to Yahweh, we see God save one purple goods worker, that is Lydia. Now, it says she's a worker of purple goods um, from this city that's very hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to pronounce it again. So uh, she's a, a worker of purple goods. Now, these purple goods, what this means is she makes clothing for the rich and famous, 
right? She makes clothing for those who are wealthy. Ergo, she's also wealthy, right? Because when she makes this, she sells it to them probably at a higher margin than she made it, right? Her profits are pretty good because these people can afford it. She's only selling to the very wealthy in society. She is wealthy. She is powerful. She's influential. She was a Greek woman who at one time uh, gave up polytheism and trusted in Yahweh as the only one true God and has been devoted, but it's likely she's not a proselyte. I'm going to let you guys uh, talk about that in your Bible studies. I don't need to bring that up now. Anyway, uh, she turned to the God of the Hebrews and she said, that is the one true God. All these others are fake. All these others are, are false. I want to trust in that God. So she's been faithfully meeting with these people. Now look with me as we read it again, exactly what happened to her in verses 14 and 15. So it says, uh, um, she was a worshiper of God. 14b says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This sounds so strange to a lot of us. To maybe not you and I that have been sort of steeped in an understanding of where regeneration and faith and how they play play with one another and what comes first and who comes, what does the response come first or does the salvation comes first? What, what happens? This may, if you haven't been sort of steeped in that language for the, you know, the past three years, if you've been a member here or two and a half, whatever, if you haven't been steeped in that, this may seem odd to you. And it, indeed, it, it's something that people even within our own denomination have to wrestle with and talk about and disagree on. This sounds like the Bible is saying that the, the Lord first opened her heart and then she acted in faith. And then she, she heard the word of the, the Lord and acted in faith. This should not sound incredibly unfamiliar to us as Baptists. What I'm talking about here is the idea that regeneration precedes faith. That God saves and then we act out of that saving faith. God saves, regenerates us, makes us a part, adopts us into his family as a son and daughter of God, co-heirs with Christ, gives us the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of faith, right? The righteousness of Christ that has been taken from him, ours removed, his placed on us, him in our stead. That, that sort of faith, an understanding of that and a faith to obey has been given to us and then we respond with obedience and repentance for the rest of our life, right? That's how, according to what I see in this text, that's the, the mode of salvation. That's the order that we see here. This shouldn't be super you know, surprising to us. If you want some resources for your Bible study, 80s, I think it'd be really cool. Examine and this is just a really good practice for, for all of you. I'm not going to go into it now for time's sake, but examine the Baptist Confessions of Faith. Go throughout history, starting with the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1833, which is ours, by the way, the 1833 uh, New Hampshire Confession, the, the uh, 1859 Abstract of Principles, and then moving on forward to the 1963 and then eventually the 2000, the current Baptist faith and message. Examine all of those 
and see really the, 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 the order of salvation that they, these men, perceive. with the exception of the 1925, you'll see that all of them are in favor of what, the, of what Luke is recounting for us here. The Lord opened her heart and then she paid attention and acted in faith. This is good news because this communicates that our evangelistic efforts, yes, even our salvation and faith is entirely dependent upon the God in heaven who is unchanging. This is good news for us. That might seem like arbitrary theology. I promise you it's not. It is, a, it is an understanding of the scriptures that will lead us to a deep appreciation for our own salvation and a deep reliance on all that we hope to obey. So all that Paul was trying to to do, he relied on the understanding that it is God who saves me and now I want to respond out of faith. Our evangelistic efforts are entirely dependent on him. Our salvation, our faith, the hope that we have to obey is entirely dependent upon God in heaven. He is the one who sends his spirit of regeneration to us and imparts upon us the righteousness of Christ that grows our faith. He is the, the, the one who is going to save the Lydias that may in fact be in our city. And when he does, he does not do so without a purpose. So if, if we continue to read the book of Acts, even if we continue to read Acts chapter 16, we see that even, even the, oh, being the head of the household, even though she's, I'm gonna let you guys talk about that in Bible study, she is uh, a single woman most likely who is very powerful, wealthy, entrepreneur, uh, and has many people in her household. But um, she, uh, she offers her home and her hospitality to those of the household of faith. She says, come, Paul, let, let me keep you in my house. Let me take care of you. Let me, P- Paul, Silas, Timothy, whoever is with you, come into my home if you find me worthy and faithful. Come into my home. I want to extend the grace of God to you just as you've communicated the grace of God to me. There's a reciprocity that's going on. There is, God does something, it incites something within her and she is acting upon that incitement. Our obedience should come as a result of revelation and understanding of who God is. God is gracious, God is a provider, God is a protector and Lydia wants to do that to these men. She wants to, just as Jesus told us in Matthew 10, as we have freely received, now freely give. She wants to display that to these these men. She displays great faith in this offer, not only because she's a woman and these are men, but also she is Greek and they are Jew. Even though she's converted to, to Judaism, there's still a little bit of cultural stigma involved here. If we continue to read Acts and even continue to read this chapter, we see that apparently her home becomes even the sort of hub of the ministry of God's church in Philippi. She she essentially, if we can observe correctly, she's kind of hosting a house church in her home. Sort of the first congregation or or a a meeting place and gathering of God's people is going to happen at Lydia's house. Because when Paul and Silas are released from from prison, they're going to go to to Lydia's house to inform the brothers, and then they're going to leave. This woman, by her faith, aided the mission of God in Philippi. We have to believe that God is going to do that with people here in this city. I know it is not a one-to-one. I know we are not Paul. I know we are not pioneer missionaries. I know we are not under persecution from this in a direct sense, but there are those in this city that are advantageous to win the, to the gospel, and God is willing to save these people. 
So pray, pray earnestly that God will save influential people so that we might, not just for an arbitrary sake of, of making a name for ourselves, but so that God can be glorified to a greater extent within these people. So that God can save, he can be glorified, and he can use that glory that he's showed them to save others. So pray. Pray for women like this. Pray for men like this in our own city. So in conclusion, know this. Just a couple of things. God's guidance is on display even when it appears that he's saying no. Trust that his plan is better than yours. I promise you he knows better. Second, his providence will prevail. What he has set forth will come to pass. His good pleasure is the thing that allows him and, and keeps uh, his good pleasure is the thing that, that enables salvation in a person. He is the one who is acting the, these things and acting out these things. God is doing things behind the scenes that we would not believe even if he told us. Habakkuk said that in the midst of real darkness, right? In the midst of very difficult times. Habakkuk said, God would not believe us if he told us the things he's doing. Remember that providence will prevail. We might not see it, but providence will prevail. So what do you do when God says no? Trust him and prepare yourself for when he says yes. In the midst of discouragement, remember the hope that you have in Christ, a hope that is in him and him alone. Our hope can only be found there and only there will that hope prevent our heart from breaking at adversity. But remember that God's providence is good and that he will not fail. His word does not come back void and that he will indeed do what his will dictates is good, true, and great. So, will you join me in, in praying as we sing about our hope being in Christ and in Christ alone? And as we do, remember the difficulty that you've had maybe in this past season, whether discouragement, whether depression, whether anxiety, whatever the case may, may be. I wanted to share in closing this one quote that I heard from John Piper this week. He said, every Christian who struggles with depression and discouragement struggles to keep their hope clear. There is nothing wrong with the object of their hope. Jesus Christ is not defective in any way whatsoever. But the view from the struggling Christian's heart of their objective hope could be obscured by pain, by the pleasures of life, and by satanic fiery darts shot against them. All discouragement and all depression is related to the obscuring of hope. And we need to get the clouds out of the way and fight like crazy to see that our hope is truly in Christ and how precious he is. Let that be an encouragement to you as you remember the dark days and look forward to when God is bringing a light. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We're devoted to you and we commit ourselves to your spirit. God, I hope the word of God was made clear here this morning. We pray that you would allow us and enable us to take this truth that you often say no and that you also say yes and that we need to hold both in tandem and be ready to obey, obey whatever you may say, whatever you may call us. May we take this truth and may we go into our lives, our families, our workplaces, our city, and may we reach those who do not know you as Lord with the gospel. And in doing so, may you receive all the glory. 
May you receive the glory as we sing about our hope being found in Christ and Christ alone and the anchor that he is for us that keeps us tethered to him even in the midst of the the most tumultuous storm. So God, in all this, we love you and we're grateful for what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.